We have Lord's Supper coming up this Sunday. And it has a luncheon thereafter. So bring your appetites. Otherwise, we have the call to worship. The hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. Let us stand and let us sing hymn 528, 528.
us pray. We indeed rejoice, God Almighty, not only on this day, but throughout the week as occasion arises, and thankful in our hearts for the salvation we have in Christ Jesus and the guiding of all things towards our good. We pray in particular this morning, God, that we put aside distractions, that we would focus upon you, Lord, and praise your name with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. As you taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. You may be seated. We have the responsive reading of Psalm 67 inside the insert. Let us read it responsively. God, be merciful to us, bless us, and cause his face to shine upon us. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. God shall bless us and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Let us pray. Indeed, God, we come before you as God-fearers, those who submit to you as children submit to their parents in a loving kind of fear, God, that's not servile, but an understanding that they wish not to displease them, their parents, God, and be punished because they love their parents, Lord, and they know their parents love them. And so, God, we love you, and we trust in you, and thus we come to you with our sins and transgressions of your law and thought and word and indeed. In various and sundry manners, God, we have done these things throughout the week. Perhaps there are sins of gluttony or avarice or excessive lust towards things of this world that make us fret and worry, whatever else it is, God. May we repent of them. May we not excuse them. May we not hide them in our lives and our hearts, God, to pick them up later and use them towards more transgressions of your law. Help us to that end, God, to live a repentant life, a life sensitive to your law, and sensitive and understanding, God, above all, to your grace and promises through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we can rejoice in the mercies that you have given us and for the spirit of sanctification that dwells within us, that we may grow in the fruit of the spirits and love towards one another and our fellow men. And God, we're thankful, Lord, that your mercy and long-suffering, covenantal faithfulness is extended to giving us to the church and access to preaching and to your word and to read and to pray according to such things. Help us, we pray, as a church, to continue to love one another, 
to bear one another's burdens, to admonish one another, to fulfill, therefore, the law of Christ. We ask, God, that you be in particular with our leaders, give them understanding of the times that they find themselves in and how they can help the church and the members there in God and to use the finances wisely. We pray for our deacon, Lord, that you would also be with him in his endeavors to do his duty before you and that our leadership would not be discouraged, God, but continue to do good works to the best of their ability, and indeed all of us in our church, and not just our churches, but our sister churches here in the Dakotas and elsewhere across this nation, God, and all those who name the name of Christ, whatever denomination they may be in, that their leadership would also do the right thing in all honesty and purity before you, Lord, and to seek your word and to follow it and to grow thereby. And their churches, Lord, and their members would also desire the fruit of the Spirit and to understand your law and your gospel and to follow you to the ends of the earth, we pray. And bless your churches, God, in spite of our limitations and our sins and our violations of your law, Lord. Through Christ Jesus, we pray, and that we would live collectively a life of repentance and a life of holiness in accordance to your word, Lord. We pray and ask that you would help us to be faithful as a church, uh, to have outreach and instruction to those who need to hear your word, and to show a love to all men, especially to the household of faith. And God above, we lift up our nation and the laws therein, not only nationally, but here in our state and locally in our communities and our counties and our cities, God, to have righteous laws uh, that will protect the innocent and punish the guilty and that we would not rewrite what morality is that we have uh, followed for thousands of years across the world and in our own history, God, especially, Lord, all that which is in accordance to your word, the moral law of God. And God, we pray for leadership as well to support such laws, to endorse such laws. And we ask God for leadership that would take care of us as in accordance to their responsibility, Lord, and protect us from uh, wicked men and wicked uh, associations that wish to undermine and tear down our local community or steal from us or whatever transgressions they wish to employ because of their wicked hearts. And so, God, we ask and pray, not only for our neighbor's sake, God, because we love them, as you tell us to, that we want to have godly laws and godly leadership, but, Lord, especially for your church to be protected and to be preserved in this day and age in which we find ourselves in. And we ask, God, for continued peace in our nation and our local communities, God, and peace internationally that our government would not seek out uh, war and trouble that's none of their business, God, but we would maintain and search out for peace, God Almighty. And although other nations may not, Lord, uh, may our nation uh, not draw us into other things that are more harmful to us than what it looks like perhaps at first. And so, God Almighty, we ask that we would have godly laws and godly leadership, not only nationally but internationally. And we think of our brothers and sisters that are affected therein across the world with other hardships, that you would also be with them and give them safety and protection. And so, Lord, we pray in our nation here in particular, as we've had just a hurricane, another hurricane, that same one that built up strength into the Carolinas, God, that you would help the locals there in your providence, Lord, and give them the things they need to rebuild, but especially, God, that their hearts would be torn down by the hurricane. They would see the suddenness of dangers in this world. And although we feel comfortable because we have such wonderful technology and prosperity that is not our own, but built over generations of wealth, that can be torn down in a matter of minutes. A reminder, God, of the coming impending judgment and doom upon those who will not repent. And so, God, we pray that those people there, our fellow Americans in Florida and the Carolinas, would have access to churches and faithful ministers and faithful Christians, God, who will speak the truth to them in love, a truth that warns them 
of coming hell if they repent not and follow Jesus Christ. And so, God, we pray for many conversions from this, Lord, and that you would be with the church in particular, God, and give them the funds they need to protect themselves, to help rebuild their houses and their buildings if they've lost them, God, and all the other attending difficulties that come with the hurricane. Our Lord and Savior, we ask that you'd be with our efforts today to worship you and to love one another as the saints of the Lord and to welcome the stranger in our midst. We're praying, uh, Almighty God, especially that your name would be magnified and glorified in all that we do. In your glorious name's sake, we pray for the expansion of your kingdom. Amen. We're now the tithes and offerings. Let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures, fear below. Praise Him above ye, heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy magnify your name on high God and may we do this with these tithes and offerings an expression of our heart Lord they are tokens that is parts of the whole a physical expression of our our invisible hearts Lord that we love you and we wish that the kingdom work would be expanded and be used mightily we pray these things to be done in accordance to your will amen while we are standing let us go ahead and turn to hymn 567 567 oh sorry 440 Four zero A forty A verses one through five.
seated. We have the reading of the Apostles' Creed. The green sheet inside the bullets or inside the hymnal. Let's say the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Let us turn to our Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Verses 18 and following. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. The disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. And when they came and said, then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new pieces pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts in the wineskins, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Let us pray. And so, God, we read here of a question about fasting that our Lord and Savior did not call his disciples to do, and yet others around them, pious and godly people, as far as everyone else was concerned, were following the word of God. And thus we see, Lord, how our Savior had come in a real way, time and space, and changed many things, Lord, as he was here, because he has come to fulfill all prophecies, God, that he is a greater prophet than all the others, even John the baptizer, who was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, because he, indeed, our Lord and Savior, was the Son of God, the second member of the Holy Blessed Trinity. And thus, when he was here... Fasting was not needed because our Christ and Savior was here with joy for all his people. And indeed, even now, the Lord, as you've ascended into heaven and given us your spirits, and so we rejoice in a way, God, the Old Testament saints have not rejoiced. Help us, God, to continue to find and to live in that joy of faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Here we read of an interesting exchange between Christ and some unknown questioners, perhaps other scribes and Pharisees, as was the case in the prior verses and other verses throughout the Gospels, as we know, many times the questions are brought from people who are unhappy with what Christ was doing and they wish to somehow trap him. In this case, the question is about fasting. It's a foreign concept to many today in America. We only think of fasting as perhaps involuntary, such as those who are poor in a third world country, Africa or someplace else, and they have no choice. Why would someone fast when you can have prosperity and all the food that you want to eat? And furthermore, even if we understand fasting, as I think many more do in America who are Christians, uh, 
and have perhaps even used it, we probably don't understand the context of the question about fasting here and the significance of asking that with respect to others who were doing it at the time, other Jews, they were doing it. And thus it seems to be a most reasonable question. So as we dig into the text, hopefully you'll see and understand the significance of the question and more importantly, the significance of Christ's answer and what it imports for us. The first point, the Old Testament fasting. Uh, verse 18, the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. You might be surprised to see those two groups of people put in the same sentence <laughs> because John the baptizer also spoke against the Pharisees and said, you, you, you brood of vipers, who warned you of the judgment to come? That was John the baptizer. They're not getting along very well, oil and water. And yet they had similar practices because they were both Jews. That is, they're following the practices of the Old Testament church, the Jewish church at the time, as God has given them. And so as we go into the Old Testament itself, we'll see the role of fasting. The Old Testament doesn't talk much about it nor explain it. It assumes it and offers it as something to be done. In Leviticus 23:29, we read of um, fasting there in an idiomatic phrase during the Great Day of Atonement. And that's how it was taken for many, many centuries. To be affliction of their soul at the time was to bring about fasting. And so on the great day of atonement, which was done but once a year by the great high priest into the Holy of Holies, and they would be called to a general fast. It's mentioned again in Zechariah chapter 7. I preached through the book of Zechariah, the prophet there. And he talks of the seventh month for the murder of the governor is when they have a fast, the tenth month for the siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, and the fourth month for the breaching of the walls. And so that case, the, the fasting, the threefold fasting they gave was a fasting of mourning and of tribulation, of hardship and the like. And here they are in the captivity doing this mourning. And of course, they were fasting and mourning in a hypocritical sense, and that's why Zechariah was berating them in that text for it. So there the fasting was done, and the fasting was not reprimanded by God, but why or the purpose of the fasting at the time. They did it for mourning of such a serious thing, the sacking of God's holy city, especially the temple. The presence of God in a unique way in the Old Testament was a shock to the collective conscience of the Jews, and thus they all fasted those three times for those three different events at the time. By the time of Christ, the more rigorous Jews, like the Pharisees, and as we see here, the disciples of John regularly fasted. All Jews fasted on the Day of Atonement, as I pointed out. They also fasted at the Feast of Dedication in Purim, as well as those described in Zechariah 7 and 8, as I had mentioned before. The more pious also fasted two days every week, probably Monday and Thursday, according to some commentators, for the whole day until the sunset. And we read of fasting here, in the life of Jesus, in a parable he gives in Luke chapter 18, verse 12. Luke 18, verse 12, he speaks of a man who speaks to his audience that I had fasted twice a week and I gave tithes of all that I possess. And so we see Jesus, in his own parable, describes the common practice of the pious Jews during his day. And the disciples of John fasting would make sense if John was in prison at the time which is probably the case. It doesn't say John fasted as much as the disciples of John fasted. We don't have a lot of historical context with Mark. It's a shorter book, and it's a quicker book in many ways, and so he's trying to get to the nub of the matter. Now, 
John's disciples fasted, but Christ and his disciples did not. Already showing us something's different about this group of people, specifically their leader, because the disciples are followers. They're following the example of their master, the rabbi, Jesus. He's not fasting. He's not calling them to fast. And thus he's already showing that he's something different, and he's more than a prophet. John the baptizer, called elsewhere the greatest of the Old Testament saints, is fasting, but Jesus is not Something's going on, something unique, as we know. And that uniqueness is that he is greater than a prophet. Deuteronomy 18 tells us the great prophet is coming. He's greater than all the prophets. For indeed, he is the son of God in the flesh. And thus, his mere presence changes things and practices. As we know from the language of Jesus in verse 19. Now, the then current expectations of fasting... Amongst the Pharisees, as we know, the name Pharisee tells us all that we need to know about why they fasted. To put on a face, to put on a mask, to make it look like they're more pious and holy than they really were. In Matthew 6.16 we read, Moreover, when you fast, Jesus tells his audience in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. They want the praise of men. Look how godly and pious these guys are. They're fasting. And we get to see their fasting. They mark up their face somehow to make it clear and obvious to other people that I'm sacrificing the things that are dear to me for God. Jesus says they have the reward. They have the praise of men is what he's saying. But when you, verse 17, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, don't make it obvious. Clean yourself up so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to see, but to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. I had a friend of mine many, many years and I didn't know about it because it wasn't obvious. And I found out because I, over time, um, spent more time with him. He would fast on Fridays. But I didn't know it. It wasn't obvious. He didn't tell anybody. But he did it because he thought it was important. And he needed to do it. And so, it seems to me, again, given the context before, the prior verses, when they come to him and they're talking about Jesus is sitting around with sinners and tax collectors and, and the prior incident where how can you, he, how can you heal a man and, and then turn around and forgive him of his sins? Who are you? Why do you think you're special? And so this question here, I, I suspect, is another question amongst those who are doubting of Jesus and trying to find some way to humiliate him and challenge his public piety. You're not like the rest of us. What's your problem? Who does Jesus think he is, that he doesn't have to fast? Nor his disciples. Well, as we know, since he's the Son of God in the flesh, he doesn't need to repent of anything. He doesn't need to fast for sins. Fasting is often because of sin or some sin context. The difficulties of this life. But not only, of course. And he does not fast because of such difficulties that he cannot overcome. Sometimes we fast because the situation is so desperate and so dire, and we're calling upon God, and it distresses us so much. Not because of sin per se, but because it's such a difficult thing that must be overcome somehow. And so we call upon our Lord through fasting as well. Again, Jesus doesn't need to do that because he can overcome all things. He fasted in the desert because he was the second Adam who withstood the devil in our stead, had a particular purpose. And thus the question here in the context of expectation, why aren't you like 
rest of the Pharisees and pious people of the Jews. What makes you so special? And the question of fasting then, verse 19 to 22, and Jesus said to them, can the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? Why did the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but you don't? And Jesus gives an answer. He gives an answer in a metaphor, a word picture here. And part of it, he says in verse 20, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will fast in those days. And thus we read that Jesus expects some kind of fasting to occur. And so we should not read verse 19, as we've always been told, context, 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 without the other verse, which is clearly taken of a piece. I am here I am special. I am greater than John the baptizer, greater than anyone else because I'm the Messiah. I'm the promised one. And people should rejoice because I'm here. I'm fulfilling prophecy right before your eyes. Why would they fast? They should be happy and excited. Like being at a wedding. And the groom is there and his party is there. And the groom and the party are not going to be sad and dour face. Except I suppose today when people are sad and dour face because they're going to be chained to a wife. As they joke around. But we know what he means is the best kind of marriage, and being yoked in love. And we rejoice over this and are not sad. It's, in fact, insulting to the groom, to the marriage, to the families, to come to the wedding fasting. And so Jesus says, while I'm here, why would they fast? They should be happy talking to them. But the days will come when the groom is gone, when Jesus is taken away, and then they will fast. So there is a thing of fasting. So I talk about the question of fasting. Should we do it? What is it? Jesus says they're going to do it. Verse 22, or verse 20, excuse me. Now, fasting, verse uh, Matthew 9.15, excuse me. When the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? So we have a similar incident, probably the same one. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away, and then they will fast. So it is repeated in the Gospels, because it will happen and will occur. The bridegroom, as we know, is Christ Jesus our Lord, but fasting shall come. Why shall fasting come? The necessity of the circumstances dictate it. In this case, Jesus leaves. The bridegroom will be taken away. That is the groom. He's going to get married. We'll be gone. And then they'll be sad. We will all be sad. When we have a consuming problem upon us, when things are bad, divorces and schisms and cultural upheavals, we did that back in 2020 twice, you fast. Because the situation is so dire and so serious. Now, fasting, of course, as we know, is no eating. and You do a little bit of water, perhaps. Some people don't do water. There's different kinds of fastings. I've covered that in another sermon. And, of course, your diet may affect it. Some people can diet, uh, fast more than others, depending on if their body's not broken. But we should do it with humility. We should do it because the situation dictates it and the matter is serious enough to pray and to have fasting before the Lord our God and Savior and not be prideful as the Pharisees were. This metaphor, then, is obvious. The question of fasting and his answer, as I pointed out, is that during a festive time, the groom is there, we rejoice, 
Now, the Jews gave marriage as an exception to fasting. They had twice a week. They had various sundry events throughout the year in which they would fast. But they knew in a festival and a marriage, you shouldn't fast. It's not a time to fast. It's not a time to not eat. You're supposed to have a celebration and have food and rejoice. Christ is saying, in other words, I am that exception. I've come, and you shouldn't fast. That's a unique claim. Think about it. What's he saying? I am so unique and so special that you should not be sad about your sins. You go one step beyond that, you know why. Because I wipe away your sins. I should be the source of joy, not sadness. Sin is a source of sadness. The consequences of sin. So when we fast for dire circumstances, as Christ expects us there in verse 20, those dire circumstances we know come about from the effects of sin. Someone sinned somewhere down the chain of events. It doesn't have to be an immediate sin necessarily. It's just the whole world we live in. They talk about a system of oppression. There is a system of oppression. It's called sin. And the effects of sin in various and sundry ways in our lives, in our economies, in our social interactions. But with Christ, he says, you interact with me, there's no consequences of sin. There's no chain of events of sin that you need to repent of and be saddened over and feel the effects of. For I am the source of forgiveness. I am the source of life and rejoicing. I'm the exception of why you don't need to fast. He's claiming divinity. The New Testament fasting, in verses 19 to 20 in particular, again verse 20, he uses an illustration to highlight and explain what he's talking about. Garment and vine, wine, verses 21 to 22, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment or else... The new piece pulls away, so you don't mix old garments with new garments. I didn't quite understand that always as a, as a man who doesn't sew. I had an old blanket. I really liked that blanket. I had it for a couple decades when I was a young kid. Nice and warm. It was a quilted blanket. Beautiful quilt, all the colors and whatnot. Nice and thick. Kept me warm in the winter. Sort of falling apart and fraying. And so it was given to a relative of mine to fix it up, and it came back. Not fixed up. I thought, you, you no, you can't. It's old and rotting away. And you can't attach new cloth to it. And so I lost my old blanket, basically. I like the new one. I mean, it's warm and thick, too. Uh, but I lost my old blankie. <laughs> That's the kind of imagery he's talking about here. These are analogies of old practices with new circumstances. Old wine, old cloth, old fasting with a new circumstance of a new wine skin, where you put the wine in, it should be new wine, new practices, and a new cloth, a whole new cloth, because things have changed, to bring the old standard practice of fasting, regular fasting, more precisely, and the ceremonial fasting, in particular Leviticus, while Jesus walked among them, was like spoiling and ruining wine and a good blanket, by mixing the two, the old and the new when you cannot and should not mix the two. Jesus is here. He's the new. He brings about a radical change in the New Testament era from the old days. And so the ceremonial fasting should be done away with and is indeed done away with. A voluntary fasting, however, is still there as we read verse 20. They will fast in those days when I am gone. Of course, because Jesus is gone. That's a sad thing. I wish he were still here. And he tells us, no, if I don't go there to the heavenly places, you will not have the Holy Spirit among you. 
And so during this time, fasting is still relevant, although not to the degree, certainly, in practice as it was during the time of Christ or the Old Testament. Because Christ never said, don't fast. But that while Christ is here in the flesh, there's no need to fast. But the days will come when there will be a need to fast. And the Sermon on the Mount, they're told, of course, not to imitate the kind of fasting that the Pharisees do, but do a godly fasting. So our fasting is voluntary. It's not required by the Word of God as such. It's not tied to the temple anymore and things like that. We may have a general call of fasting. Churches may do that. But we're not going to come out and check out your rooms and your house and see if you're really fasting or not. We can't make you. We're not going to bind you that way. So it's a voluntary abstinence of the necessary things of life, specifically food and water, a picture and a show of self-denial to ourselves in particular, of course, because God knows our heart, and to emphasize and to remind ourselves to focus on the significance and importance of how bad the thing is that we are fasting about and praying about and wishing to have a resolution to. Of course, if we can fast for food and fast of water, the necessities of life. We can certainly fast or abstain from other things in life, and people do. You say, no longer am I going to be doing these kind of exercises or spending this kind of food and water and excesses on desserts or whatever else. I'm going to pull back because things are serious in my life, and I wish to abstain from them to remind myself how serious things are in life. One person defines fast in this way as a Christian's voluntary abstinence from food and other legitimate enjoyments for spiritual purposes. That your fasting is done for spiritual purposes. Perhaps you have a particular sin that you've been struggling with for years on end. And you wish to kill it. To mortify it, right? To mortify the flesh. That's what that word means, to kill. Fasting may be involved in that. Fasting of food or fasting of the temptation that's involved. The temptation that's not there for the rest of us, perhaps. We don't have to fast or hold back and remove ourselves from the presence of that temptation. But if it's bad enough, we will fast, as it were, more loosely, from those activities, from those things that are otherwise acceptable in the Christian life. Entertainment, possessions of things in life, books or whatever. Normal fasting, as I mentioned, is usually from all food, but not necessarily water. Jesus fasting in, four, in Matthew 4.2, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was hungry, it tells us, not that he was thirsty. You can last up to 40 days. I ran across that uh, recently doing research, I don't remember what, on, in Google, and it wasn't a Christian source. It wasn't a secular source. They're saying you can fast up to 40 days without food. Water, what is it, three days? And that's the end of it for you. So don't be so pious that you kill yourself. Partial fasts exist as well with respect to the, to the diet. Matthew 3, 4, And John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So although the word fast isn't there, sometimes it's used to describe limiting your diet, limiting things you could otherwise eat. You could eat in other things, but he restricted it on purpose to show how serious the matter was before him in which he was preaching, the coming of Jesus Christ and of repentance and of the kingdom of God. And it's hard to preach, frankly, if you're starving. If you notice 
When Christ fasted, he wasn't out there preaching while he fasted. And Moses fasted, he wasn't out there preaching when he fasted. However, when John the Baptist is out there preaching, he needs some sustenance and food. So he had honey and he had locusts, but he didn't have nice food, did he? So he had some energy source for food. And so I know when I fast, as you, as you know, I have physical limitations that way. Uh, I will eat just basically cheese and bread or something, you know, a simple food. No fancy desserts, no steaks, nothing like that. So I'm following more like John's example in that case. And you can do that as well. And of course, an absolute fast is a fast of all things. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehonanan, the son of Elishasheb. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water. For he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. Ezra 10.6 And thus in the question of fasting, in Jesus' answer, of fasting, we see that we can and do fast when the bridegroom is gone and Jesus has indeed gone up to heaven. But it's not all about fasting, as we know. The main point is rejoicing with Christ. Verse 19, and Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's here? No. As long as he's here with them, they cannot fast. What are they doing instead? What's a wedding? A somber occasion, a very serious, it's a happy occasion, it's a festive occasion. And we rejoice in our Lord and Savior. Fasting has its place in the Christian life, not the way it had it in the Old Testament, for Christ has come and changed these things, to be sure. But rejoicing is there as well in the way they didn't have it in the Old Testament. Even our fasting I would argue, is tinged with the joy the Old Testament saints did not have. For Christ is no longer about to come, but Christ has indeed come in the flesh, in time and space, and walked among men, and said, I am here to live and to die for you. And that's a happy occasion for us, because he has covered all our sins and wiped them all away. Christ coming in the flesh is proof and evidence that our Father in heaven loves us, that he has fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. As we see, when Christ is here, they can't quite wrap their head around the significance of it and the rejoicing that should entail from it. It's like a wedding feast. We see that imagery used elsewhere. The marriage feast of the Lamb. And so, brothers and sisters, Christ is emphasizing We don't need to fast while I'm here. And of course, today I would say we don't need to fast as much or as serious as they did in the Old Testament, for Christ is no longer here, but he had been here, and he's given us a spirit, and things have changed in the New Testament era. We have more revelation and more truth, and therefore we should have more joy, because we have a better understanding of what it means that Christ came and lived and died for us and gave us full salvation, full and free. We rejoice Christ in our baptism and the Lord's Supper. We rejoice in the prosperity of his hands and our family and our churches, being able to meet here this fine morning and to be with one another and to hear his word and to sing praises before him. These are all the various reasons why we can rejoice in a way the Old Testament saints could not. They still look forward to the day and age. They still lived in shadows, as we read elsewhere in the New Testament era. Like children, Galatians 4, Their understanding, and therefore their rejoicing and freedom in Christ, was limited as the way a child was limited, although he's still a child of the king. 
But when maturity happens and occurs, as it happened when Christ came and gave us the Spirit in a full measure, they did not have Old Testament. We can rejoice and be happy and to know that he is with us, to rejoice that we have the Bible in its fullness completed. The revelation therein, that we can pray to Jesus Christ our Lord and have sermons of his gospel and of his glory. Even in the midst of trials and tribulations, brothers and sisters, the saints of today know Christ came. And he came in history 2,000 years ago. And we know he'll come again a second time. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. And so, God above, may we, in our fasting, still have it tinged, Lord, with a joy of knowing that the groom is coming back again. That he came the first time, and he gave us so much more love and so much more grace and power of the Spirit, Lord, to carry on to know your word and to rejoice, God, in the salvation that we have, full and free in Christ Jesus our Lord, as we look forward to his return again. In your name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing. Hymn 281, 281.
grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.